The Truth News Network. Prices out of control, inflation rising, industries screaming out for materials, parts, qualified workers. How is it that Hollywood isn't feeling this? How is it the media aren't scrambling? Questions worth answering, but where do you get those answers? You get them here. TNN, the Truth News Network, and Dan Newman. And Dad Gummit, we're going to do our darndest. I use the two D words there, Dad Gummit and darndest, to get you the real, the real facts today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Thursday at TNN Live, a production every Monday through Friday, 9 to 11 a.m. Central Time, of truthnewsnet.org. And we're glad you're joining us today and every day. We have so many things to talk about. Have you have you noticed that a lot of the things that are thrown into the marketplace of ideas every day and we're told, oh, this is, this is serious, this is a big deal, and they beat the drum over and over and over again, and it's anti-anything that disagrees with anything they say. And then all of a sudden, there's no information about it. It's like it never existed. They won't talk about it. And I think we're finding out, we're discovering that many of the things we believe for a long time about those on the left and the narrative coming from the left is just that. It's narrative. And when they discover, uh uh-oh, we got busted, some facts rolled out there that disprove the allegations they make, then all of a sudden, they just very quietly start doing it the right way. You know what I'm talking about? It's like they never want to admit that they made a mistake or they misrepresented something or they, God forbid, were wrong, right? Nobody likes to be wrong. But it's an adult thing. (laughs) It is an adult thing. And there are a lot of people out there that refuse to turn that page ever towards becoming adults, which is part of growing, getting stronger mentally, and being a better human period, a moral human, to admit when we make mistakes and apologize to those who are impacted by the mistakes that we make. That's just part of life. So why do we feel like the world we live in is 100% a zero-sum game? Now what does that mean, Dan? That means there's only so much money to go around. There's only so much righteousness to go around. There's only so much wrong to go around. And so whatever of that that you want, the only way you can get it is to take it from somebody else. You can't generate new righteousness. You can't generate being right. If you get the chance to be right, the only way you can do that is to steal it from someone else. That's a horrible world, psychologically, mentally, and emotionally to live in, don't you think? So, novel idea, why don't we just do the best thing that we can do and be honest all the time? (laughs) It sounds simple, doesn't it? But boy, is the opposite very conflated. You know, it's like this lying thing. There are a couple of kinds of liars, the ones that... uh, Uh, I think are most common are people that will just tell a fib every once in a while. But then you have pathological liars. And by the way, you're going to hear from one of them in just a little bit. California 
Representative Adam Schiff. He's back in the in the blogosphere today. He is back on Donald Trump. <laughs> He'll never give up, folks. But he is what is called a pathological liar. That's somebody who lies so much that they don't have any remorse. It's just kind of the way they think. And the bad the bad part about that, beside the obvious, the bad part about that is you never quite get comfortable because you've got to remember, if you're a pathological liar, you got to remember who you told the last lie, what the lie was, and make sure you don't make a mistake because you're going to get busted if you ever get caught. That has got to be a bad place to live. So good morning, everyone, and welcome. We're so glad to have you here. I'll tell you one more time, just for those of you that come in and you may not have been here before, we've had a mass of uh, subscriptions to truthnewsnet.org the last few weeks, and some new people are beginning to join this show. And we're so appreciative that you're doing it. And for you long-timers, thank you so much for sticking in here. But let's talk about the show for just a second. You can get this show. You don't have to listen to it live. Of course, we love for you to listen live, and you can participate at any time by calling in toll-free at 1-866-37-TRUTH. That's 1-866-378-7884. If you want to join the show, if you want to ask a question, or if you want to bring us some new information, feel free to call in at any time. Now, about the show being live, of course, it's live every Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 a.m. Central Time. But almost immediately after the show ends every day, it automatically gets published at Apple Podcast, Spotify Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio Podcast, uh, also at Stitcher and TuneIn. So if you use any one of those podcast sources, and if you have an iPhone, of course, it comes with a podcast icon or app. Just click on that, and if you've never found a show on that record in any of those websites of podcast for the first time, you just go to their search bar and type in the name of the show, TNN Live. And it will pop up the main page of our show, TNN Live. And when it does, it has a whole list, a catalog of our shows by date, and the most recent date is right at the top. So you can listen that way. Of course, if you're at your office and you can't do that, uh, but what you can do is uh, pop in the earbuds, listen to the show live, and then if you're in the car later or if you're sitting at the house and you want to grab a show that you missed the previous week or previous day or even same day, you can just grab your phone and pull it up there. We want you to stay plugged in. We're going to dig into something in just a moment. And it has to do with, is the glass half full? Is the glass half full or is it empty? Well, to be honest with you, based on physics, it can be both at the same time. But it's based on the way we view it. Is your glass half full or is it empty? We're going to get into that. There's so much bad news out there. And, of course, the big story of today, it's already come out, Um, inflation. Inflation, massive inflation is here. We didn't think it could get worse, 
but it's getting worse. It surged again, more than expected in January, notching another four-decade high as strong consumer demand and pandemic-related supply chain snarls fueled even more rapid price gains that wiped out the benefits of rising wages for most Americans. And yes, Americans' wages are going up. The Consumer Price Index, that's the measure of inflation, it rose 7.5% in January from last January, January of 2021. That's according to a new Labor Department report released earlier this morning. That makes it the fastest increase in 40 years, folks, since February of 1982. The Consumer Price Index, they call it the CPI, it measures a bunch of goods ranging from gasoline and health care to groceries, rent and mortgage payments, jumped 0.6% in just one month. Economists expected the index to show that price surge 7.3% last month and 0.5% on a monthly basis. So it's worse than even the experts predict it's going to be. So how bad is it? Where's it hitting you the hardest? I guess if you look around at your life and look at the cost for the things that you do and the things that you buy and the things that you need, it's probably going to be a little different for a lot of people. Somebody that has to drive a lot, I can tell you, pulling up at the gas pump is probably the most obvious place where it's it's really kicking you in the shins. I'll never forget this. Paid a dollar sixty-five for a gallon of gas the day the election of twenty twenty. A dollar sixty-five. I paid three dollars and four cents earlier this week. Did I get more bang for my dollar to make up for that difference? During the first year of the Biden presidency, absolutely not. My wages didn't go up. Not everybody's did. But even if it did, the cost that we're paying for goods and services, its rise more than eats up the average job wage increases across the nation. In other words, we're going backwards. That's not a good place to be. I think you'll agree. And, of course, what happens automatically, it's politicized. Everything is politicized. Depends on who you listen to. Of course, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, she makes it very clear. She's explained it several times. Here's the reason why prices are going up. It's because Americans started spending money again. It's like we didn't buy groceries or gasoline during our lockdowns. She's oblivious to the facts of living a life out in the hinterlands of the nation. She's in the Potomac Valley. And I mean, in D.C., they are very insulated in their bag of ideas that they live their lives in, breathing, sleeping, eating, everything based upon their political partisan position on everything. Facts do matter, folks, but for a lot of people, they don't care. They really don't care. They're not willing to pay a price. They're not even willing to consider maybe, just maybe, something they think is just not right. Oh my gosh, that'd make them wrong. They can't be wrong if you're in power. You got to be right all the time. 
So there are so many things that go into all of the issues we are experiencing as Americans. Yours are different from mine. I'm sure ours overlap with each other. But nevertheless, they're real. They're real. And it's become, I guess, the the right thing, the acceptable thing to diminish what someone else says, period. Nobody can be equal to you. You can't let somebody, you can't allow somebody that has a different opinion to be right and for you to be wrong just because they're right. All of this, it's put us in a, in a really bad mood. Now, it might be that we in the public are tiring of all the political bickering the pandemic anxiety and economic dislocation. Just look at the data I just gave you. Facing wave after wave of the coronavirus and day after day, week after week, month after month, uncertainty in our economy, we entered 2022 fearful and most of us dissatisfied with the way things are going. Now, none of that is to suggest that... uh, We have little faith in the future. One study that came from the Pew Research Center says the exact opposite is true. Many American adults, 61%, are optimistic this year is going to be better than last year. But dissatisfaction with our national conditions, and particularly the economy, it afflicts both political parties. It's not a Democrat thing. It's not a Republican thing. Today, Only a tiny share of both Democrats and Republicans and those who lean toward each party, they say they are satisfied with the way things are going, although Democrats are nearly three times as likely as Republicans to have a positive view. Why is that? They're guys in power, right? They control the House and the Senate. They got it all going their way. And as for this president, he's struggling to keep the public mood upbeat. Starting now, his second year in office, horrible job approval, and majorities expressing little or absolutely no confidence in his handling of the economy or the pandemic. So what do we turn to to get a little release? i got to be honest with you. Sports is really a place, a good place to go get cheered up. But guess what? Not this year. We've got the Winter Olympics going on right now, which is normally a time where everybody just kind of pulls together. We're all Americans against the rest of the world, right? We pull up in front of the television and we cheer our Winter Olympians on. Not this year. NBC today is facing a cataclysmic loss of audience for the Winter Olympics. Viewership hit a low point for the opening ceremony, averaging just 16 million viewers. It was a record low, record low for the opening ceremony. That's horrible. 16 million. 1988 was the previous low record and it was still 20.1 million. 16 million watched opening ceremonies this year. It's a whopping 43% below the 2018 games in South Korea that had 28.3 million viewers for opening ceremonies. And that comes on the heels of last Thursday's rating disaster 
That saw 7.7 million tune in, dramatically below the same night audiences of 2018 and 2014. Even winning gold medals might not cheer up our athletes, many of whom are deeply unhappy with conditions in Beijing, from the hotels to the COVID-19 policies. Everybody's scared to death. Not having our nation formally recognize the games, that also kind of put a damper on things. Although China's negative human rights record deserves no recognition, right? Sports can be and often is a form of diplomacy. And China certainly not earned a gold medal for its treatment of its dissidents, its journalists, and those poor Uyghurs. Nor does China respect intellectual property. So let's cut to the chase, folks. We need to get to a better mood. We need to get to feeling better again about ourselves. How are we going to do that? Well, maybe we ought to reach out to some folks that are pretty heavy, pretty significant in our lives. Maybe we should lean on news organizations to start reporting some better stories. Yeah, I'll put the facts in there, but don't color them with your opinions and your perspective. Give us the facts, but then go find a few more of those happy stories that tell about good things. Negative news, it almost always proliferates during times of crisis, like an impending war between Russia and Ukraine, discussions of controversies on Spotify. Who would have ever thought we'd go there? Joe Rogan would be the most trending word on Twitter, on Spotify, in his war with them. Constant updates every day about the number of COVID cases around the world and deaths from COVID. Now, all of these stories, they got to be covered. But having an endless parade of talking heads drone on and on and on about the world's problems, it could be balanced with a few more good news tales of heroism, or just ordinary life in America, how people are overcoming normal problems, right? Second, novel idea, Mr. President, why don't we get inflation under control? Boy, that would help Americans' insecurity about our future. Rising prices depress ordinary Americans and those who invest in the stock market. It's impossible to ask people to be happy about paying more and earning less and getting less for your money. Even though jobs are readily available today, childcare isn't, schools are open, teachers are exhausted, and kids are scared to death. Third thing, we need daily reminders of the generosity and the grace of human beings. Nobody's talking about that anymore. And to engage with our own communities, to put together a sense of inclusion for everybody in our own towns, in our own cities, in our own states. Human anxiety is at record high levels now. Folks, we got to reach out to others and do so with compassion instead of beating them up with our political partisanship. Moods matter. Look, we're looking right down the barrel of springtime. It's just around the corner. And this is the season for all of us pulled together and lift spirits. And by the way, just thought I'd point this out. 
Everybody on earth is watching us. They always do the United States. If we can find a way to come up with and convey a sense of optimism, guess what? If we make the choices to accept that and reject everything else, the pessimism, the glass is half empty, that that just might make us start feeling that things are a little better. And we've got to get there, folks. I can't live in this world of negativism. I just can't. Now, I'm not leaving the world, at least not voluntarily right now. But I'm saying, you determine how you're going to face everything in your life. Don't let other people tell you, make you feel a certain way. We choose. We choose to accept things emotionally, psychologically, mentally. We make those choices, even if it's just subconsciously. We all make those choices. Why, oh why, do we continue to make the choices to think everything is bad? Wow. It's not all bad, folks. You're alive. You're listening to the show today. You woke up this morning. I'm certain everybody has challenges in their lives. But you know what? You've overcome the challenges so far, so why can't you do it again and again and again and just trust that you're going to stop obsessing about all the bad things? I guess that's a good way to start the show, right? Well, we've got something coming up. We're going to take our first break. When we come back, I'm going to let you listen to somebody that's got some great ideas and some great information about part of what's feeding this negativism that you and I face every day and what we can do about it. And it's front and center in the news world today. What is it? I'll tell you in just a moment. When it comes to online meetings, you're crushing it. But if you want to crush something that's a little more fun, why not play Best Fiends, the five-star rated puzzle game? Best Fiends is loaded with challenging puzzles that are so much fun. And you're never accidentally on mute. So take a stress break with the cutest characters on the planet and download Fiends for free from the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Play Best Fiends. Download free. Here's the latest traffic report. Looks like miles of trouble-free driving with Napa Auto Parts. Your local Napa Auto Parts dealer in Modesto has a full line of quality parts for your car or truck. Napa Auto Parts keeps America running and Modesto Auto and Truck is ready to keep your vehicle running. Top shape for years to come. So if you think your truck needs help under the hood, think of Napa Auto Parts at Modesto Auto and Truck Parts. 924 G Street in downtown Modesto. 529-8342. 529-8342. Ah, luxury. The aroma is full-bodied, the flavor is decadent, the touch divine, and the drive Yes, the drive of luxury is simply infinity. Introducing the Infinity Luxury Test Tour. If you think you are familiar with luxury, you haven't driven an infinity. 
Infinity of Elk Grove invites you to truly become familiar with luxury and take a luxury test tour. It's like a test drive, but with more luxury. We invite you to drive luxury to luxury, not for an hour or even a day, but for an entire weekend. Your choice. Select your Infinity and motor off to a luxury weekend in Lake Tahoe or Napa Valley. And yes, all the luxury is on us. Introduce yourself to LuxuryTestTour.com and truly become familiar with luxury. Infinity of Elk Grove is literally giving you the keys to a luxury experience like none other. LuxuryTestTour.com. Drive luxury, drive infinity. Infinity of Elk Grove. Expect more. I guess something like this song would would get us in a good spot, (laughs) mentally, emotionally. Just get down tonight. Remember Casey and the Sunshine Gang? Well, let's get back to business. Let's talk about what we're dealing with now and why it seems like often we just can't get anything right. Everything we do, our decisions, the choices we make. Somebody out there doesn't like us for making those choices. And maybe you just don't seem to fit in. You can't get it right or what you're doing or what you're thinking isn't good enough for other people in your life. It's called identity politics. Today in America, there really is only one unforgivable sin. And that is to deviate from the accepted script when speaking of protected identity. It is to say something, whether intentionally or not, that either offends protected identity groups or that the elites find offensive on their behalf. What I think is important to grasp from the outset is that identity politics today is not just the dominant ideology when it comes to civil rights. It's the dominant ideology in America, period. If you look at prominent politicians, professors, producers, pundits, Fortune 500 CEOs, tech gurus, journalists, all of the famous, credentialed, and successful people who comprise our ruling class, they either all affirm the tenets of identity politics or at the very least are deferential to them. Americans are now divided into favored and disfavored groups. And civil rights law, we are told, should not apply to the favored groups. Identity politics is demanding that we judge people not by the content of their character, but by the color of their skin, their sex, and their sexual orientation. And it demands that we do so in perpetuity. It rejects the principle of what James Madison once called equal rights under equal laws. And it instead demands that we build a modern caste system that privileges some groups over others in our laws and culture. Identity politics is not answering the question, who am I? Although it does have an answer to that question. Its primary focus, rather, is the much deeper question of, why is there evil in the world? And identity politics provides a clear and unambiguous answer. Because of straight white men. Identity politics takes and modifies the Christian teaching on sin, it now no longer applies to everyone, but only to the oppressor groups. But here's the more important modification. It offers no hope of salvation or of redemption from sin. Equal group outcomes are now the measure of equal opportunities between groups. And under this logic, 
All disparities can only have one explanation, discrimination. All disparities are blamed on discrimination, and anyone who suggests otherwise is immediately called a sexist and a racist in order to silence dissent and stimmy inquiry. And here, of course, ultimately is the great paradox of this focus on group results. It requires discrimination in order, it says, to eliminate discrimination. If you focus on results, this will inevitably lead you to deny positions to some people on the basis of their skin color, their race, their ethnicity, their sex, their sexual orientation, you name it. The main reason that identity politics exerts such a powerful pull in America is because it suggests that we can either embrace identity politics or remain callously indifferent to the well-being of fellow Americans who happen not to look like us. This, in truth, is a false choice. Identity politics should be rejected not because it demands justice for those who have been unjustly treated, but because it poses a threat to Republican self-government by corroding patriotic ties and demanding special treatment rather than equality under the law. I think you'll agree we're facing this in our lives every day. It doesn't matter if it's in your family members, with people of other generations, people of other ethnicities, religions, people that live somewhere else, maybe they're from another country and they're here now. Identity politics is the poison that has pretty much pushed us way down the road for the United States destruction of our democratic representative republic context in which we have been living for 260 years. It just blows my mind that even our national leaders, many of them, and we don't have to name names, you know, they want us to walk away from that representative republic that has worked so well for 260 years, and still, even though we're weakened today, we're still the number one nation in pretty much every category on the planet. Those kind of things don't just happen. They come from and based on a plan. And it began with the drafting of our United States Constitution and setting up the rule of law and setting up the processes that have kept us the freest, most independent country on the planet. You probably, like me, you look at all of this and we have people out there that are actively pushing against the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, and many of the 26 amendments saying they're not applicable anymore, or they're racist, or they're homophobic, or they're Islamophobic, xenophobic, all of the phobias and the isms out there are little more than name-calling just to try to justify a perspective that one has. It's hard to live in that world. It's really hard to live in that world successfully and to be positive while you're living in it. It's hard to have a family, raise a family, raise kids, another generation, and keep things on an even keel because they're seeing and hearing, pretty much our kids are, everything that we're seeing and hearing, but only from a different perspective. It is, in part, part of our perspectives that we've taught them, but folks, they pick it up every day. 
They see and hear things that you and I never saw and heard when we were their ages. We need to understand that. So let me just challenge you today. Start at home. Start at home. Let me talk to you for just a second about your children. My best friend, he's actually my brother, unofficial, not adopted brother, but uh, we grew up together and we're still together almost every day. He has seven children. And long ago, he decided and he went to his sons and his daughters and he told each of them, look, I'm your dad. I'll always be your dad. But I want you to be able to talk to me about everything. Everything. I mean everything. Good, bad, things that you're thinking, problems you have, fears that you have. Roll it all in. And I'll promise you this, he told them all seven. I'll never judge you. I will never tell you you're wrong. You're bad. I will let you tell me everything about it and I'm not going to judge you. Think about having that concept in your life, not just with your kids, but what about your employees if you own a business or you manage one? What about your bosses if you're one of those employees? What about your spouses? What about you talking to your kids about your issues? If we would just put all of the emotion and the selfishness and the I want to be right all the time stuff, just put it to the side and communicated honestly with all those in our lives, don't you think we'd be a whole lot better off now? I mean, just look at one for just a second, one area. What about the United States political system? Imagine if you could to anybody that you interact with, if you had the freedom to express your opinions about everything to do in our government. And you didn't have to even give one thought to the fact that you would be rejected, that they would think something bad about you. And so you don't, therefore, express your opinion. You don't share it. That's the world in which we live, folks. And it's become normalized with this crush for what you just heard. Identity politics, you got to find the right place to fit in with your ideas about everything. And there's so much insanity in it. He mentioned a couple of them. The leftists who control identity politics, most of them think, hey, the answer is because we made it the answer, not because it is an answer. The only way to get rid of racism is using racism. That doesn't work, folks. All it does is create bigger, greater, wider divides with less opportunity to get them fixed and find consensus and move along whatever road we're on together. We got to get there, folks. We got to get there. And I don't want to pat myself on the back. I'm not going to do that because I have a lot of problems communicating with a lot of people about a lot of different things. And the older I get, the more I see that looking back over my shoulder, my rearview mirror, I could have saved myself a lot of heartburn if I had had this conversation with Dan 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It's never too late to start. Never too late to start. Novel idea. Why don't we start today? Why don't we consciously 
look at everything that we're normally just spouting off about. And before we spout, let's think about what it's going to say, what it's going to mean to those that we're spouting to. And maybe change our narrative a little bit. Now, I'm not talking about lying. I'm talking about being totally the opposite, 100% honest. Even when you know something you say may offend somebody, if it's important enough for you to communicate with them, just do the truth. Tell the truth. Be honest about it. If they want to hear it, if they don't want to hear it, it really doesn't matter what you say, or even if you say it or don't say it. They're not going to be um, open to hear what you say, even if it's honest. But then, folks... It's no longer about you. It's about them. Take care of yourself. Take care of your narrative, your perspectives. Always be willing to inject yourself, your thoughts and ideas, if and when it needs to be. But just rethink that entire process. Now, it may sound like it's a big deal and it's too intricate. You don't want to mess with it. (laughs) Folks, it's worth it. It's worth it. Who wants to live a life of constantly looking over our shoulders, second-guessing everybody, including ourselves? I don't want to go down that road. I really don't. In the context of this, regarding things that are very critical to all of us, we can't just turn and walk away and not even get into the processes of governing right now that in large part are the reasons why we find ourselves with all of these issues. Most of them, if not all of them, we brought on ourselves. We elected people, put them in office in the House and the Senate and in the White House. Americans put those people there. So all they're doing in large is what they told us they were going to do if they got put there. I know it's not always the case. Joe Biden's doing so many things that he did not tell us he would do if we elected him president. But that's politics. Sadly, that's politics. A lot of promises, a lot of unfulfilled promises, and a lot of things happening that they told us wouldn't happen. Do you remember in his campaign, did he talk much about the southern border wall? Did he talk much about illegal immigration? No, he didn't. And so with all of the policies that he's adopted now and put out there, most of them he had all along, he just didn't talk about them. That's kind of the way politics works. So he can honestly say in most cases, if he's ever confronted, you promised us you would stop illegal immigration. He didn't. Now, does that mean he should be honoring the law federal laws passed by him in part when he was 40 plus years in the U.S. Senate and they passed a lot of immigration laws. It's not okay for him to turn his back on the law. He swore an oath as a president of the United States. He would enforce the law. And in many cases, he's not doing that there. And that part is getting worse and worse. His Department of Homeland Security has deported just 27,000 illegal aliens. Wow, that's a big number, right? Well, in perspective of the number that they haven't deported, it's not a good number, not even a big number. 
120,000 illegal aliens were released from federal custody according to his mandates to his Department of Homeland Security. Now, you can find this report. It's buried in the DHS database circulated by the Federation for American Immigration Reform, and it gives a glimpse, a look-see into Biden's so-called sanctuary country. Orders help massively reduce the number of illegal aliens arrested, deported, or released from DHS custody from February to September of last year. That's all in there. It's been in there. Few of us have known about it or found it. DHS Secretary Mayorkas confirmed two weeks ago that the Biden agenda is justice and equity for illegal aliens. Forget about that American law thing. Forget about that Constitution thing. Justice means legal, law, not according to Mayorkas. He said this, quote, unlawful presence in the United States alone will not be a basis for immigration enforcement action. It is a matter of justice and equity as well. That, folks, is a paradox. The first word of his quote makes it very obvious. It's anti-law. I'll give it to you again. Mayorkas said this, quote, unlawful presence in the United States. Okay, unlawful means you're here illegally. So, Mayorkas, he believes and said it. It's okay. It's okay. That's not, and it should not, and it will not on our watch, instigate actions to hold you accountable for your unlawful presence. Mayorkas' orders prevent Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, from arresting and deporting most illegal aliens in the U.S., including a bunch of them that are accused of killing Americans here. They've been here before. They're back now. And many of them committed murders in their home countries even after they came here and were deported previously. According to the data that we dug out, In the first eight months of Biden's year one, only 27,000 illegals were deported. And you compare that figure to fiscal year 2020, more than 185,000 were deported. Fiscal year 2019, 250,000 were deported. That Federation for American Immigration Reform, FAIR is what they call it. The president, Dan Stein, said this. At the apex of the illegal immigration surge that began with the inauguration of President Joe Biden, Customs and Border Protection were encountering about 7,000 illegal entrants every day, not including the big number who went undetected while ICE was averaging just 100 removals a day. For all intents and purposes, the Biden administration has implemented the radical left's goal of abolishing ICE. And they're doing it by not coming out and saying, hey, we're going to abolish ICE. They're just de-teething ICE, not letting them do their jobs, basically saying, go sit over there on the corner. We'll call you if we want you to do something. One recent case that embodies this abolishing ICE priority 
is that of one illegal alien, Herberto Fuerte Padilla. He killed 19-year-old Adrian Sofia Exum in a hit-and-run crash in November. Exum's mother, Rhonda, revealed that her daughter's killers not considered a priority for deportation by the Biden administration. Likewise, Biden is refusing to deport an illegal alien accused of scrawling swastikas in D.C.'s Union Station. In addition, the data shows that from February 2021 to September of 2021, the Biden administration released 120,000 illegal aliens from DHS custody. Thousands, thousands are convicted criminal illegal aliens, while thousands more have pending criminal charges against them. Stein said this, the new data confirms what we already knew. President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas aren't judiciously enforcing our immigration laws. Folks, we could, we could do this story every day. It really doesn't matter. So why do we keep talking about it? Here's the important thing. We're going to keep talking about it daily if we have to until we get an administration. I don't care who it is. If this guy, if Joe Biden decides to turn the page and do a 180-degree turn and decides he's going to, in his administration, begin enforcing federal laws, every federal law, until it's changed by Congress, I'll support that. I'll be glad with that. But folks, if you don't have a structure of laws and you don't abide by the laws, you don't have a country. You become a banana republic like dozens of them in the Caribbean and in South America. You're not a country at all if you don't enforce your laws, period. And the fact that somebody in the White House would selectively support this law but just turn their back on this law because it didn't fit their particular perspective at the time. And we can get into the reasons for doing it. There's typically money involved in it. There's campaign promise payback, all those kinds of things in it. You know what I'm talking about. The why doesn't matter. It's never right. It's never right. And one senator got up yesterday And he basically said, addressing a bunch of reporters, Joe Biden doesn't even care anymore. Of the long list of failures of the Biden administration, failure to secure our border has to be at the top of the list. And I agree with my colleagues who said he doesn't care. He just doesn't care. Meanwhile, the transnational criminal organizations that smuggle human beings into the United States, and you've already heard from Senator Johnson and others mingled among those migrants that you might suspect are coming for economic reasons, or convicted felons, sex offenders, and uh, people who've committed terrible crimes here in the United States or in their home country. And. The president appears to be oblivious to, in addition to the humanitarian crisis and the security crisis, the public health crisis that was alluded to here a moment ago. Last year, 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses. 
The fentanyl and other drugs that caused those overdose deaths, by and large, came across our southern border. So I thought, coming from a border state, maybe the president needs a place to start. That's why I reached out to Senator Sinema, another border state senator, a Democrat. My colleague Henry Cuellar from Laredo, a Democrat, and Tony Gonzalez, a Republican from a border district. And we came up with the Bipartisan Border Solutions Act. Not a panacea, but a place to start. The Biden administration has shown zero interest in that or any other solution. And as you've seen, uh, Secretary Mayorkas, who's been down to the border recently, he's had Border Patrol agents turn their back on him because basically they are he is not allowing them to do their job. It's a travesty. I wish there was something we could do or say that would change their conduct of the Biden administration. The only thing I can think of is a, a, the American people can rise up in these midterm elections coming up and give Republicans the majority in the House and the Senate so we can put legislation, meaningful legislation, on the president's desk. Also, we can just start enforcing existing laws until we get meaningful legislation on his desk. Folks, Congress can't do anything if a president's going to thwart what they do according to their constitutional responsibility. Craft laws, oversee and hold the executive branch of the U.S. government and all those in it hold them accountable for not doing things. And this Congress, remember, it's controlled by two people, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, and they're in the Joe Biden camp, which is lawlessness. Don't enforce any federal laws with which we don't agree politically. That, if we don't stop it, will begin, and we're probably already in the middle of a slide down, that ramp towards the destruction of the United States structurally. Seriously. And you can see this in every area of your life, everything you're dealing with. What are you dealing with right now? We talked about it in our opening. Gasoline, grocery prices, um, anger. You can't go anywhere. You're afraid to death. Criminality is just rampant across the United States and nothing's being done. You can choose to either let that devour you and keep you locked up and your head spinning and you're spewing vomit. It's not going to do you any good. We just have to put our one foot in front of the other one day at a time and just live our lives and be optimistic and begin to try ourselves to right the ship. We can't do it on the same level as somebody like Joe Biden could or other members in Congress, or even your local leaders in your your governor's office, or in your state city council. But you can always start. Speak up. Speak up. You can do it without being nasty and ugly. But let, let your voice be heard. If not, folks, they're automatically adopting the thought process that you don't care. You're just okay with whatever they're doing. So they'll just keep doing whatever they're doing. And we obviously know that's not going to work. It's kind of encouraging to me that is seeing 
some of these governors of these Democrat states, these hard blue states, they're actually now stepping up and pushing back against things COVID-related. This policy by Joe Biden, this lockdown policy that his administration has put out there, his own personal mandates, that in courts and among millions of Americans, he's getting pushback about. And he can't even agree with some of these uh, Democrat governors in these states where they're supposed to be behind the president. I mean, just yesterday, we have several blue state governors that have announced they're doing away with the mask guidance, the mandates in their states that they put out there based upon their agreement with President Biden. But now they are really looking into the real science, not the Fauci science, but the real science about it. And they're saying enough's enough. We're not going to do it anymore. So White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki yesterday, she defended Joe Biden's process for determining the federal government's mass guidance when she was pressed by a reporter yesterday. Some of these Dem governors have begun to relax their masking and van vaccine requirements as the numbers of COVID cases, COVID deaths and hospitalizations are on the slide down now across America. Saki was asked yesterday if the decision to revise mask guidance would be strictly the calls of the CDC or the NIH, National Institutes of Health, that's Fauci's fiefdom, or if Biden would weigh factors including children's mental health and our economy in his decisions. And Saki initially answered, quote, he will make the decision based on what the CDC advises. What I'm trying to determine is what does listen mean? Does it mean that the CDC calls the shots here? Or, as these governors have done, does the president take into account the trade-offs? This is from the reporter. He didn't just accept Saki's response. This is about public health. It's not just some kind of abstract thing in a vacuum. Kids' mental health is affected, impacted by wearing masks. Human behavior is a part of this. The economy is a part of this. Does he take those into account or does he just assume the CDC will do that for him? Saki replied, what he has made the commitment to the American people on back when he ran for president and we've tried to abide by it is that he would listen to the data, listen to the science, Saki said. Certainly our health and medical team, obviously the CDC is a part of that, Dr. Fauci, other experts. Well, that's the politically correct narrative out of this administration. But a bunch of these Democrat governors are saying, we're done with it. A number of those governors, including in Nevada, New Jersey, Delaware, and New York now, have relaxed or even lifted their mask and vaccine mandates in just the last few days. Those governors have cited changing science and COVID-19 metrics as their justification, but the White House has not budged in its guidelines that they keep putting out there for pandemic response. They're actually giving advice, continuing that advice, and are abandoning what Joe has always said and what Saki said, 
Listen to the data. Listen to the science. The science does not support any mask wearing. Did you hear me? Any mask wearing. If you don't agree with that, look at our story we published yesterday that we published the same story with the same control laboratory test on mask efficacy a year ago. 47 different laboratory control tests say masks don't stop COVID-19. They will not protect you from COVID-19. They will not protect you from transmission of COVID-19 virus cells from others. They don't work. 47 different tests. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but I would say that would be an overwhelming um, commitment, an overwhelming statement about the efficacy of something scientifically determined. We're instructed by Fauci over and over again, follow the science, follow the science. Of course, he made it He made it very clear a couple of months ago when he was confronted by Rand Paul in a Senate committee hearing about the science, the science, and Fauci actually said this, I'm the science. Well, he's not. And I guess basically what Saki is saying is, well, if you, if you consider Fauci the science, then the president is going to follow the science. Saki replied, with no attachment to the truth. Here's what she said. Masks are effective at limiting COVID-19 transmission in schools and elsewhere. That's not factually backed. In fact, the exact opposite is true. She said there are a range of experts who advise the president make determinations on CDC guidance and that the White House would continue to rely on those experts. What she's saying, folks, is exactly what we talked about in the opening and what you heard that gentleman share explaining what is driving all of this. It's identity politics. It's power. It has nothing to do with science. We've been preaching that here at Truth News Network and TNN Live for two years. We began to ask questions two years ago, more than two years ago. And we got some answers, but then when we shared the answers that we got from real experts like Dr. Judy Mikovits, like Dr. McCullough, we got called conspiracy theorists. And it's not conspiracy, it is real science. It's real science. So speaking of Fauci, he weighed in yesterday. He said, the United States is almost past the full-blown pandemic phase of the coronavirus, and he is hopeful, hopeful, that all virus-related restrictions could wind down in a few months. Now, let me ask you this. Yeah, he's a doctor. He's the guru of infectious diseases. He's the guy. Would a real scientist make a proclamation like that that is so ambiguous, that is so vague, it means absolutely nothing? We are almost past the full blown pandemic phase 
and he hopes that all virus-related restrictions could wind down in a few months. Did he expect somebody to make a decision based on that? Well, I was just thinking about just staying locked down and I wasn't going to go outside anymore because Dr. Fauci hadn't told me it's okay to go outside anymore. I was hoping he was going to say that today, but all he did was say he's hoping. So I'm not going to go outside. I'm going to wear a mask inside. I'm a double, triple mask. I'm not even going to watch television if somebody on TV is not wearing a mask. Fauci told the Financial Times that the government response to coronavirus will eventually be handled on a local level and not federal. Does that sound scientific? Wow, Fauci said it. So it's got to be about science, right? Nope. What he Let me tell you what he's doing. He's doing CYA. Now, he was talking to the Financial Times. Did you see him anywhere on the Sunday talk shows this weekend? No. Why? They don't want him on anymore. You know why? Because he tells lies. He's being exposed every possible time in these interviews. He's being examined on the things that he says compared to the things he's told us in the past. And every time he does that, he becomes more like what we told you a year ago, a year plus, about Dr. Fauci, based upon the stuff that comes out of his own mouth. He's a pathological liar about all things to do with COVID. Fauci in this thing yesterday, he didn't mention a specific month or specific season, but he told the Financial Times that these restrictions, including mask mandates, could end soon. That sounds real scientific, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh my gosh. The number of people in the hospital across the U.S., it's tumbled down more than 28% over the last three weeks. But that doesn't line up with the science that Fauci told us about month before last. Remember that? Omicron first appeared in that laboratory in South Africa, and he immediately set the world on fire, started talking about going back to lockdowns. We shut down. We had numerous companies that just shut down because of what Fauci said about Omicron. Oh, it's going to be much more contagious. Everybody's going to get, everybody in the United States, he said, is going to get Omicron because it's so easily transmissible. But then the real scientists begin to tell us, well, yeah, it's kind of like a cold or the flu. It does transmit a whole lot easier than does the beta or the uh, delta strains of COVID-19. But guess what the experts were telling us? It's not nearly as deadly. Dr. Chris Byer, an epidemiologist at John Hopkins, told the Associated Press, what we want to see is that the Omicron surge continues to decrease, that we don't see another variant of concern emerge, that we start to come out of the other side of this. Now that aligns with what Fauci said there, but it doesn't align with what Fauci said for two years. Something else popped out. Some, oh my gosh, it's one of those science things, and Fauci didn't tell us about it. Somebody else did. Another scientist. Any infection with COVID-19, regardless of its severity, 
appears to increase the risk of heart ailments for survivors. That's from a new, one of those brand new controlled laboratory studies. And one of the researchers in that study called it stunning. The study found an increased risk of 20 different heart and vessel issues for those who have had the virus a year earlier. Governments and health systems around the world should be prepared to deal with the likely significant contribution of the COVID-19 pandemic to a rise in the burden of cardiovascular diseases. Eric Topol, a cardiologist at Scripps Research, told the magazine that he was surprised by the findings and called the ailments serious disorders. If anybody ever thought that COVID was like the flu, this should be one of the most powerful data sets to point out it's not. You don't get heart serious cardiological problems from the flu. But you can, and many are, from COVID-19. Reuters, they picked up the study. They found that Of all those who recovered from the virus, they had about a 63% higher risk of a heart attack, a 52% greater risk of stroke one year later. They also said that those who recovered had a 72% higher risk of heart failure. The elevated risk seemed to impact everybody, regardless of their sex, their age, or whether they were bearing pre-existing conditions. It pointed out that even those who were not hospitalized also had greater risk of cardiovascular disease. If if I had a problem with this story, here's what my problem would be. It wouldn't be that it is not factual because apparently it is. The data that they released with this findings they gave us shows that they're absolutely true. What's missing? Somebody like um, an Anthony Fauci that has still, even though it's a little bitty shred, he still has a shred of integrity and he is an expert in his field, no doubt about it. Does um, Does he have the confidence of the American people anymore? No, absolutely not. There are some that are pretty much hard politically attach people to the far-left narrative of pretty much everything. The rest of Americans are not, they're not seeing any or very little of what he tells us align with the facts, the things that they actually are seeing play out in their lives. What concerns me about this is it didn't come with any, well, here's what we do in those cases. That should have been released simultaneously. And even if there was a, uh, a disclaimer that came along with it that said, we're working on this and we feel like we're confident we're going to find out a little uh, in just a short period of time what our options are to take care of those things when they happen. Let's hope that's in the pipeline, but they didn't mention it. That bothers me a little bit. One more thing COVID-related before we go to break. This is a sad thing. A daughter's wedding and everything that goes along with it should be about joy and celebration, nothing less. But one New Jersey mother, because of New York City's COVID vaccine mandates that began last summer, she finds herself enduring a medical emergency that she never even thought about. 
This is a bad story. Her name is Kathleen Zemlachinko, age 63, of Raritan Township in New Jersey. She chose not to take the COVID-9 vaccine after consulting with her doctor. She's fit. She's very active. She had already tested positive for COVID in January last year. She had a very high antibody level to prove that. I had 3,000 times the antibodies that would have shown somebody as having a positive antibody response, she said. Zimlachenko didn't feel comfortable getting vaxxed until she had more information about the potential side effects for those who had antibodies to the virus. Last year, after New York City's former 6'9 mayor, Bill de Blasio, after his vaccine mandates came out, she said she really had no choice. So in mid-August, de Blasio announced his key to NYC vaccine mandate, which required you got to have proof of vaccine for any patrons who wanted to visit certain Big Apple establishments. So unless she took the vaccine, it was highly probable that she would not be allowed to join her daughter, Emily, the youngest of her five children, for a wedding dress fitting experience for mother and daughter at a Manhattan shop ahead of Emily's November wedding. She felt coerced. She didn't want to miss that thing. That's a big thing between moms and daughters. Our two daughters, when they both were getting married, Marianne and them, they went out of town, went to Dallas, went to New Orleans. It's a big deal to go get wedding dresses, wedding gowns together. And she didn't want to tell her daughter, Emily, you got to go by yourself. On August 5th, she received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which would give her enough cushion ahead of the mother-daughter dress fitting to be considered fully vaccinated. But... Two days after she took the vaccine, she developed a blazing headache and her blood pressure shot through the roof. She was ill enough to land in the emergency room at Hunterdon Medical Center in Flemington, New Jersey. Her blood pressure reading was 40 points above her normal level. She and her doctors attributed the episode directly to the vaccine. So after the scary episode... Zimlachinko was put on medication to help her address potentially dangerous hypertension. Her usual work schedule, she's a healthcare consulting, a consultant, runs a business of her own, was disrupted because of multiple trips to the doctor. Her Her condition resolved eventually. I think she felt guilty about what happened, Zimlachinko said of daughter Emily's reaction to her medical emergency. But mom emphasized New York City's vax mandate and the threats around it are what made her get the jab. The family was just trying to do their best to follow the ruse, and they had unexpected consequences. Have you still, let me ask you this, how many times have you seen Dr. Anthony Fauci on television? How many times have you heard him talk about vax, 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 vax? How many times... And you got to be honest with this. Be honest with yourself. There's nobody sitting there beside you right now or probably listening with you. Did he ever talk about one of the 23,149 deaths that have happened according to his own website, the VAERS COVID vaccine adverse event report that comes out every week? 23,149 people have died directly from vaccines since January a year ago, 
23,000. Did he mention anything about the 3,903 miscarriages or the 11,765 heart attacks that come from the vaccines? Not COVID-19, but the vaccines. Did he mention that they, the CDC and the NIH, are confident that the number I just gave you, those numbers, are probably off a little bit because a whole lot of those are not reported to the CDC. How many, Dan? The number they landed on is 41 times more. It's likely, they say, 41 times more. 23,149. Now, that's the reported number. They're telling us that it's likely that 41 times that could be the real number. Let me give you what that is. 949,109 deaths. 450,000 heart attacks. Have you heard them? I mean, don't, don't, don't they require disclaimers on the boxes and the bottles for every FDA medicine that's out in the market? You've got to have it. You've got to show what the adverse events likely or possible are. There's a disclaimer. You watch TV ads. I mean, a 30-second spot, 20 seconds of it is the disclaimers about what the effects could be. Have you heard Fauci talk about these, any of these? Anaphylaxis, Bell's palsy, myocarditis, disability, miscarriage? Nope, not one time. Not talked about the numbers, won't even have a conversation about it. Why is that? Why is that? You and I both know. It's because it doesn't fit the political narrative. It doesn't fit the identity political perspective that they have to maintain, which is... We're the science. We're the ones that have the answers. You're just a layperson. You're just John Q. Public out there. Yeah, we know you're the guys and the girls uh, that have to deal with all of our policies and things we shove out there, the deaths and the sicknesses. But you know what? You, you plebes out there, you just got to suck it up and continue to do what we tell you. Join in the conversation. To find out how, see the homepage at truthnewsnet.org. This is TNN. Nowadays, it's more important than ever to know the value of a dollar, or three, or four, or five, or even six. New Dunkin' Go-To's, now with brews. Tasty breakfast combos that give you more bang for your bucks. Get a wake-up wrap with sausage and a medium-hot coffee for $3. A bacon with cream cheese spread and a medium-hot coffee for $4. A bacon, egg, and cheese croissant with a medium-hot coffee for $5. Or a power breakfast sandwich and, you guessed it, a medium-hot coffee for $6. Dunkin' Go-To's, now with brews. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Exclusion apply. Limited time offer. Today on Hey Culligan, softer equals better. Here's a tweet from Ed Itchy in Idaho. Hey Culligan, my laundry is so scratchy, I just cut myself on a cable knit sweater. Any suggestions? Hashtag send help. Hey, Ed Itchy in Idaho. Yes, the Culligan High Efficiency Water Softener will make that thing so soft, it'll go from cable knit to cable knot. Itchy. Hashtag soft laundry. Hashtag already on the way. Get started for as little as $10 a month for six months at participating Culligan dealers. If you think we're just four wheels in a grill, think again. The Jeep Grand Cherokee redefines freedom. 
But what really makes Jeep? It's finding the perfect balance between luxury and adventure without ever compromising. It's driving across the country to see your family, to make new memories. So, what makes Jeep? You do. Jeep. There's only one. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. In a world where truth is in short supply, you have an abundance of it right here. TNN, the Truth News Network. You know, there's other stuff going on that we need to dig into here. You know, we still have this thing going on over in Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia. I was told yesterday the Russian troops that are on the borders all around Ukraine, all but one side, they have Russian troops on. It's it's approaching 200,000. And of course, then the questions are asked of our government, of our president, what are we going to do if Russia invades Ukraine? And all we get are these um, standard textbook answers, oh, there will be a serious price to pay. And of course, they're asked often, do we have any troops in Ukraine or any troops there? We were told, no, 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 no. And then a couple of days ago, they told us, well, we have 150, but they're not there as fighters or military. Uh, They're advisors, military advisors that are there. And then we find out yesterday that number was wrong. It's 350. That's kind of like what happened in Afghanistan. You remember we were told day after day after day, Americans stranded in Afghanistan, uh, Secretary of State, and then Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor. Well, there are some Americans there. We told them in advance, those of them that we could get in contact with, that they needed to get out of the country, and if they would come talk to us at our embassy in Kabul, we'll help them make the arrangements. But a lot of them wanted to stay, and we don't know how many of those people are there. And then when he was pushed and pushed and pushed, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, well, it's in the low, 100-plus low, I think probably around 100. And then we find out last weekend, and I've not heard anybody talk about it. You know what the number really is? 9,000 Americans. 9,000 Americans behind Taliban enemy lines, and they got left there by this president. So what's going to happen in Ukraine? We have, they tell us 300 soldiers that are there. What happens to them if Russians do invade Ukraine? Are they there to just sit and watch what happens happen? Are they going to be part of it? Are they going to be involved in it? That would mean, folks, we would have Americans fighting against Vladimir Putin and Russia. Nobody's talking about this. Well, except us. And last night, Tucker Carlson at Fox News. Well, Joe Biden, you may recall, spent a lot of his time as vice president meddling in the internal affairs of Ukraine. And you may wonder why Ukraine as opposed to, say, Denmark or Senegal or any of the world's other 195 countries. Simple, because the Ukrainians were paying Joe Biden's family a million dollars a year in exchange for the work that he did. And as president, you may have noticed, Biden has continued to represent Ukrainian interests, most recently in their dispute with Russia. Biden talks constantly about all the scary things he'll do if bad old Vladimir Putin dares to offend the territorial sovereignty of Biden's close friends, the Ukrainians. But one thing Joe Biden will not do, he has assured us repeatedly, is send American troops to Ukraine. 
polls show Americans do not want that at all. And Biden claims he's heard the message. Watch. This would be the largest, if he were to move in with all those forces, it would be the largest invasion since World War II. It would change the world. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Let's go. Thank you, guys. Let's go. Thank you, guys. You guys, come on. Let's go. Thank you. There is not going to be any American forces moving into Ukraine. There are not going to be any American forces moving into Ukraine. That's what Joe Biden told us, and it's reassuring to hear that. But wait. It's not true. It's yet another lie from the mannequin, in case you're still bothering to keep track of them all. Fox News has just learned that there are already more than 300 American troops in, yes, Ukraine. Now, Joe Biden's calling them military advisors, just like we did back in Vietnam. Troops, advisors, it's really a distinction without a difference. Just last week, we were told there are only 150 American troops in Ukraine. And as far as we know, the force has more than doubled in recent days. And that's assuming the new number is even real. And by the way, why would we assume that number is real? These people lie about everything. The truth is, we have no idea how many American troops are in Ukraine right now, only that the total is a lot more than they said it was, because again, they lie all the time. So here's the question. There are American troops in Ukraine. What's going to happen to these troops if and when the Russians invade? Now, the Pentagon says there are no plans to pull these troops out. And so that means that very soon, American soldiers could be fighting Russian soldiers, which sounds to our civilian ears very much like the definition of war with Russia. Are you ready for war with Russia? Has anyone asked for your consent or even your opinion on war with Russia? No. That's democracy, Biden style. That's democracy, Biden style. Nobody wants a war. We've been to, I mean, we've been through way too many. I mean, those two Iraq wars, neither one of them needed to happen. We were drawn into those, led into those on false pretenses. You know, those weapons of mass destruction that were all over the nation of Iraq. There were none. There were none. Thousands of Americans died. Tens of thousands of locals throughout Iraq and Syria and other parts of the Middle East. We could just go on and on about it. You know all of that. But what's happened now is this administration did not just mess up in Afghanistan. They've got us in a really bad situation regarding Ukraine. I wonder, I wonder what the back-channel conversations have been between the White House and Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. We know there is a lot of financial wrongdoing by maybe not Joe Biden, but the Biden family syndicate, Hunter and Joe's brother. They've been involved. We've had testimony about that, testimony before Congress. Nobody wants to talk about it. Could there be any of that playing into any of the decisions that are being made now? So what are we going to do? Are we just going to let Vladimir Putin go in there and just take over Ukraine like he did Crimea? Well, I mean, he saw what Barack Obama and Joe did regarding Crimea. They did nothing. You remember when the government of Ukraine reached out to the U.S. begging for weapons to use, those Stinger missiles to use against Russian tanks before that invasion happened, you know what we sent them? The only thing we sent them, blankets. Seriously, that's the only thing we sent them. Obviously, they couldn't win a war. They couldn't protect their nation with blankets from the U.S. 
So what are we going to do this time? What are we being asked to do? What are we saying we're going to do? What are the back-channel conversations? If it was Donald Trump, you would know that because they would go get the content of those back-channel conversations, they being the Democrats, and they would put it out all across the nation. And speaking of back-channel conversations, I told you at the top of the show, Adam Schiff has raised his ugly little beanie head again. And he weighed in there. He's kind of been gone, so he's looking for opportunities to get back in the public eye so he can be labeled as being credible. I doubt that's ever going to happen again. But anyway, yesterday he was on CNN's Anderson Cooper 360, and he did his circle back to guess who? Donald Trump. He said yesterday Trump could be prosecuted for willfulness in the destruction of documents belonging to the United States under the Presidential Records Act. So what is this all about? Well, the guest on guest host, John Berman, said this, talking to Schiff, I want your take. The fact that the National Archives is asking the DOJ to investigate the former president's handling of these White House records, do you think there's any criminal exposure, particularly if there are any classified documents he took down to Mar-a-Lago, as the New York Times is reporting? Schiff said, well, first of all, I think they are absolutely right to make the referral to the DOJ because there's public reporting. Huh. I mean, it's credible. It, I, I'm, I'm, I'm inserting my, this. It's credible. It's in the public re- reporting now. The New York Times, the bastion of integrity in reporting news, they said it, so hey, 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 that's justification. Let's go find out if he broke the law. And Schiff said, and so it looks very willful on Trump's part. And if there's evidence of potential willfulness in the destruction of documents, that is the kind of case, if any case, is going to be prosecuted and might be prosecuted. And here's what he said if it happens. If it were to happen, it's a case like this where it appears to bow a willful decision. And the classified allegation is much more serious, in my view. That's that Donald Trump brought to Mar-a-Lago in an unsecure location in boxes that others may have access to classified information. If that allegation proves correct, the Justice Department will have to investigate. Oh, and it's because it's classified information. First of all, you need to understand this. Schiff is wrong on one count. Mar-a-Lago had been approved by the Department of Justice and every section in it where Donald Trump worked where any of his assistants, anybody in his administration worked, where they stayed, it was all classified, labeled classified. Now, that's a little bit different than uh, what happened during the Obama-Biden administration, right? What are you talking about, Dan? What about Hillary Clinton and that server in her home in New York? What about then-President Barack Obama communicating through email hundreds of times directly with then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on that classified server? Well, it wasn't classified. 
because they never turned it into the Department of Justice to get it in a classified status where there was security software so that nobody could get in on those conversations. Barack Obama had a Gmail address, we found out later. Nobody apparently in the DOJ knew about it. And his communications with the Secretary of State about very, very critical issues. We found out later by James Comey, who was the FBI director when they investigated that before the 2016 election, Comey publicly stated the FBI had determined all of the communications from that and to that server were picked up and diverted to a foreign country. He never named the country, but everything he said about it in context was the Chinese were getting it all. Folks, releasing classified information, knowingly or unknowingly, without having authority to do it, each one of those releases is a felony offense by federal law. There were thousands of such emails that went from and to that unofficial server and the former director of the FBI said that that communication was transmitted to other countries. Even if they didn't know about it, it was still each time a felony criminal act. What was done to that? What was done to that? What about the Mueller investigation? The whole thing was kicked off by forgery and the mishandling of classified information and committing felony acts by the FBI, those in the FBI that lied to the FISA court on an application to get the authorization to illegally surveil members of the Trump campaign. And so they surveilled. They never found anything that even pointed to possible Russia collusion. And this pinhead, Adam Schiff, He's pointing to nothing more than a story in the New York Times. New York Times stories about everything to do with Donald Trump, almost without exception, have always been debunked. That's enough talking about Adam Schiff. So let's just circle back to the Russia story. We've got a Russian story going on right now. So we need to ask some questions. We need to get some facts. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's talking. The, the, the press aren't even asking Saki and Joe. Of course, he, he can hear. And usually when he hears, he can't respond. So that's like, you know, he's an empty suit. So before the Biden administration imposes any sanctions on Russia, Republicans in Congress, the media, should ask some questions. I think they're the only ones that have access to do so. In as many years as president, vice president, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, every single U.S. foreign policy blunder that happened in all those years had Biden's fingerprints all over it. Every one of them. Last year, it was Afghanistan. The same team of advisors who oversaw the Afghan fiasco, Secretary of State Blinken, General Mark Milley among them, are giving us dire warnings about Russia. (laughs) So do you feel reassured? 
there certainly is a, a strong case that U.S. sanctions could cause some severe economic hardship to Russia. But sound strategic thinking includes at least three different components. One, a well-defined objective. Two, the close adaptation of means to whatever that objective is. And three, a careful consideration of any unintended but harmful side effects that may follow. You know, kind of like 9,000 Americans getting stuck behind enemy lines in Afghanistan. So let's talk about sanctions. This, this should have already been had by Joe Biden in the Oval Office with Antony Blinken, if nobody else. First, what is the objective of any sanctions we may put on Russia? Most likely, the purpose of those would be to stop Russia from invading Ukraine or to roll back a Russian invasion if one occurs. But we've got to look at it from the other side. Stakes are really high for Russia and for Putin. To be seen to yield to U.S. pressure would be a big blow to their prestige, and it might even cause Putin to fall as president. Russia has for a long time premeditated an invasion of some lesser incursion. That's what Biden called such a lesser invasion and has prepared for U.S. blowback. So far, Putin hadn't even flinched. But Biden's number one objective is to bring about regime change in Russia. That's what many people in Russia believe. If that's true, the Biden administration owes it to us and our allies to be much more forthcoming with information. An attempt to restructure the international order in a fundamental way like, you know, Russia could easily lead to a major war, another world war. And even if we came out on top, consequences for everybody concerned would probably be catastrophic. That's question one. Number two, what would be the effects of any of our sanctions on our friends and allies, including Ukraine? Russia would obviously, they're going to respond if we sanction them with some of their own. Those could inflict a lot of harm on friendly nations. When Russia cut off gas supplies to Ukraine back in 08, Ukraine's economy took a 20% hit overnight to national production. So does Biden think if, if we sanction Russia, Ukraine's going to get a free pass this time? What about Germany? What about other European allies? They depend on Russia for natural gas. That Nord Stream 2 pipeline, although it hadn't opened yet, it's been built specifically to supply Germany's energy needs with gas from Russia. So if, as the State Department is saying, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline will be just a hunk of metal at the bottom of the ocean, how would Germany get its energy? Third, are we Americans prepared for Russian retaliation? Wow. There's no reason to think that the U.S. would be immune if, Russia retaliates if our sanctions bite them deeply. Since their banking institutions would be our primary target, it would be natural for Russia to respond in kind. Putin's hackers could target our banks, our stock exchanges, our payment systems, and the like. Me and my company, we got nailed from Russia about six or seven years ago. They locked down 
overnight our entire computer network. And it cost us a fortune because they held us hostage. That was in the early days of Bitcoin. We had to go, I didn't even know what Bitcoin was. We had to go find where to do it, how to do it, to get our computer networks unlocked. You don't think something like that would be probable if we invade Russia, if we go to war with Russia, we sanction Russia? Fourth, can Biden and his administration count on our allies in Europe to support those sanctions? What level enforcement can we believe they're actually going to give us? Our European allies were equivocal in supporting past sanctions against Iraq and Iran, but with Russia, would they, would they do better now? What about our other allies? Russia can't meet its needs for semiconductors. It's got to look to outside sources for that. This is a major Russian vulnerability, but can we be sure that South Korea, for instance, which is a major manufacturer, will not meet that demand, maybe indirectly? Fifth, wouldn't sanctions drive Russia and China even closer? I think this should be number one. Our economic sanctions against Russia back in 2014 promoted greater trade between those two. Will China stand by and watch Russia be strangled when they're already economic, military, and diplomatic partners? It seems more likely than ever that China would enable Russia to go around any of our sanctions if Biden goes down that road. Sixth, won't crushing economic sanctions hasten the days when powers like China and Russia bring down the global financial architecture that gives the U.S. our immense leverage? You probably hadn't thought about this. The more often the U.S. uses sanctions, the more determined our likely targets will be to create alternative global financial systems. Power is best conserved when its exercise is restrained. The threat of doing things is usually more effective than actually doing those things. When have U.S. sanctions ever worked? This is the final question we should ask. When have they ever worked? As international relations scholars have argued, the effectiveness of economic sanctions is pretty doubtful. I mean, we put sanctions on Russia back in 2014 after it invaded Crimea. They obviously have not deterred Russia from encroaching again on Ukraine. U.S.-sponsored sanctions against North Korea haven't ended its nuclear program. We froze $9 billion in Afghan state assets after the Taliban took power. Have those upended the Taliban? The U.S. maintained sanctions against Saddam Hussein's Iraq for a bunch of years and against Cuba for even longer. Where's the success stories from any of that? A lot of Americans like me, we're asking these questions. We're not getting any answers. I'm telling you, folks, we're in a scary situation. The guy at the top that holds the nuclear suitcase with the triggers included and is the only person authorized to use them, he doesn't have a clue. And I'm sorry, but I don't expect any really good policy procedures and decisions to happen on his watch. I really don't. 
The new Amazon Echo has everyone asking Alexa for help. Alexa, what time is it? What the hell is wrong with this blasted thing? Amanda! But the latest technology isn't always easy to use for people of a certain age. These kids done bought me a busted machine again. That's why Amazon partnered with AARP to present the new Amazon Echo Silver, the only smart speaker device designed specifically to be used by the greatest generation. It's super loud and responds to any name even remotely close to Alexa, so they can find out the weather. Allegra, what is the weather outside? It is 74 degrees and sunny. Huh? It is 74 degrees and sunny. Where? Outside. What about it? The temperature outside is 74 degrees and sunny. I don't know about that. The latest in sports. Clarissa, how many did old Satchel strike out last night? Satchel Paige died in 1982. How many he get? Satchel Paige is dead. He what now? Died. Who did? Satchel Paige. Oh. I don't know about that. Even local news and pop culture. Anita, what them boys up to across the street? They are just playing. They what now? They are just playing. You say they just playing now? Yes, they are just playing. I don't know about that. Here are smart devices like your thermostat. Alessandra, turn the heat up. The room is already 100 degrees. Are you trying to kill me, Alize? The new Amazon Echo Silver plays all the music they loved when they were young. Angela, play black jazz. Playing, uh... Jazz. It also has a quick scan feature to help them find things. Emilia, where did I put the phone? The phone is in your right hand. And it has an uh-huh feature for long rambling stories. So then I gave him five dollars, and he said I only gave him one dollar. Uh-huh. I said, I know I gave you a five. Uh-huh. Because I only had a five and a one only. Uh-huh. And this is the one dollar right here. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you tell me who's crazy. Amazon Echo Silver. Get yours today. I said get yours today. To order Amazon Echo Silver, send a check or money order to Amazon.com right now. Well, 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 we've been talking about the rule of law pretty much on every show. We bring it up. We have conversations about it. And the biggie, the 900-pound gorilla in our world is always the stuff, the lawlessness going on regarding everything surrounding our southern border and all that stuff. Well, the Department of Homeland Security, just to be honest with you, they have a whole lot more on their plate than just that. But one thing sticks in the minds of of a huge majority of Americans. We want all laws to be enforced. If they're federal laws, especially, they must be enforced. And that means by everybody involved in the process that is supposed to do it from the top down. That would come initially from the White House through the department's uh, that are involved in that in the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and any changes that need to be made or should be made or can be made have got to come through the United States Congress. That's the way laws constitutionally are structured. Nobody has any authority to change any law 
adjust any law or not enforce any law that is passed by Congress and signed into law. Well, overnight I learned, and it kind of makes me sad, a group of Republicans, Representative Maria Salazar is a Republican from Florida, along with six other House Republicans, have introduced an amnesty plan for illegals in the middle of the largest wave of illegal immigration in our history. Her legislation is titled the Dignity Act, would make the nation's 11 to 22 million illegal aliens, we don't know the number, and I think actually it's more than 22 million, would immediately make those illegals, however many they are, eligible for green cards and eventually naturalized American citizenship so long as they stick to a very strict 15-year process. It's amazing how out of step Representative Salazar is with the Republican Party and certainly the Republican base. That's according to Rosemary Jinks of Numbers USA. We're in the middle of a historic border surge. Her response is to propose the largest amnesty in U.S. history. So who are the others in there with it? Those Republicans, Dan Newhouse of Washington, John Curtis of Utah, Pete Sessions of Texas, Jennifer Gonzalez Colon of Puerto Rico, Tom Reed of New York, Peter May Meyer of Michigan. Last month, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, he's a Republican from California, he vowed to not even consider any amnesty plans for illegals if the Republicans take back the House in the midterms this year. The amnesty violates that pledge, indicating that, assuming McCarthy is speaker and he sticks to his words, which it's not a sure thing, folks. It's Congress. Come on now. They're subject to change their minds 20, 30 times a day. But assuming he does stick to his guns, it stands no chance in the House that would be led by McCarthy in the next Congress. We know first and foremost, one of our greatest strengths is the rule of law. So you have to have an immigration system based upon the rule of law. McCarthy has said that again and again. This amnesty that they're talking about would give permanent lawful residence status to about from one and a half to three and a half million illegals enrolled and eligible for former President Obama's DACA program. All other illegals would be eligible for 10-year work visas as long as they pass a criminal background check and pay a $10,000 fine. Illegals would not be able to receive any public welfare in the 10-year program. Then after holding work visas for those 10 years, illegals would be eligible to go through a 5-year program to get green cards and become naturalized American citizens. Requirements for this side of the amnesty include taking U.S. civics courses, paying more in fines, and conducting community service. This is an unserious proposal by unserious people. Also thrown into Salazar's amnesty are provisions to require E-Verify nationwide to ensure employers are not hiring illegals for American jobs. Also, to bulk up the U.S. Border Patrol with 3,000 new agents and restarting construction of the border wall. Salazar's donors include, now listen to this, this will give you an explanation of why. They include big agriculture companies like Grimway Farms, 
massive investment and asset management firms. Why is that? Those big agriculture companies, many of them are publicly traded companies, which means their stock involved that trades on the stock markets. That means you can make them really, really valuable and make tens of millions, if not billions of dollars selling stocks, beefing their profits up. How do you get to a profit line in business? There's only two ways to impact the bottom line. Revenue and expenses. You can hire illegal alien workers, not legally, but you can get them to come to work for you and don't enroll them in any kind of federal programs, no social securities, don't put them on your legal payroll. These big companies can pay them under the table and more and more of that money goes to the bottom line because they can pay them far less. In all of 2021, more than 2 million border crosses and illegals arrived at the southern border. More than half a million of those arrivals were released into the country. They're in there. They're making that 12 million number look stupid. Nearly 45,000 were put on commercial domestic flights and flown into the country, kept here, flown into the country free of charge and are just out there doing whatever they're going to do out there. These are Republicans, folks. These are Republicans. How about some more evil? You've heard us talk about Blackstone. Blackstone is reportedly the largest private equity firm on the planet. So it came to light that uh, something really underhanded has happened. Blackstone's founder spent $100 million in donations into Marxist education for American and other students studying in China. His name is Steve Schwartzman. He launched a $100 million plan to create a global education scholarship program, not here, in China. And he wants it to rival the Rhodes Scholarships offered at Oxford University. Schwarzman has been called the supreme leader of Blackstone, a Wall Street firm. Listen to how much money they have there they're uh, managing for their clients. $684 billion. They went public in June of 07, but Schwarzman reportedly still holds an iron grip over the whole operation. He only owns around 20% of the company he founded way back in 1985. Schwarzman's also been called the China Whisperer because of his close connections to the Chinese government and China's business leaders. Schweitzer's, Peter Schweitzer's book describes Schwarzman as jokingly claiming he served both as the unofficial U.S. ambassador to China, as well as the unofficial Chinese ambassador to the United States. The Schwarzman Scholars Program, that's what he's calling it, is based on Xinhao University, which Schweitzer describes as a training ground for Chinese Communist Party and government elitists. Chinese dictator Xi Jinping, he's an alumnus of the school, which has an institute for Xi Jinping thought, on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, established with the cooperation of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Students from around the world, but especially the U.S., would come and be exposed to the Chinese communist system. 
Schwarzman explains his goal in setting up the program is that recipients would return to their countries able to interpret the massive change in China in a way that calmed fears and misunderstanding about the country. This is really happening, folks. They're killing people. They're slaughtering people over there. Their human rights violations are monumental and they're documented. And this guy, this is one of the most wealthy uh, companies in the world, in world history. And he's got all that money at his disposal. Red-handed documents, the cozy financial and political connections between the Chinese government and some of the most powerful people here include powerful U.S. financial institutions like Blackstone, Goldman Sachs, and BlackRock. In 07, the Chinese government and Communist Party bought a 9.9% stake in ownership in Blackstone, and they paid $3 billion for it. The Chinese government transaction with Blackstone yielded Schwarzman some very powerful allies. A guy named Liu Jui, head of the CIC, when it made that initial investment, later became Beijing's finance manager, minister. While officials from both the Obama and Trump administrations have characterized China's Belt and Road Initiative as a challenge to our global position, Schwarzman has actually praised it as a wonderful program. Chinese officials are pleased with the Schwarzman Scholars Program, as they should be. I mean, come on. He just opened up the pockets of one of the wealthiest countries on earth for brainwashing of American students that they're going to pay for to go over and learn how benign the Chinese Communist Party policies are and bring those back to our country and then indoctrinate us. Doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy? Speaking of China, let's circle back. Let's do a Jen Psaki. You know Liz Cheney, Republican congresswoman from Wyoming. She's one of two Republicans that agreed to serve on Nancy Pelosi's January 6th lynching, lynch mob, to go out against everybody that was there on January 6th in 2020 that were there um, peacefully protesting in the most part. Well, because of that, the Republican National Committee censored her and the other person, um, Wenzinger, from uh, Ohio, representative, censured both of them, and the Republican Party has come out and they've announced they're going to support the Republican in Wyoming that's running against Liz Cheney. But she's got some other problems. Came out overnight. Her husband's firm is in bed with several Chinese companies and several dictatorial regimes. Hmm. Her husband is Philip Perry, and his law firm was cashing in on legal and lobbying work that Latham and Watkins, his firm, one of the largest in the world, was doing for a host of Chinese companies, some of which are involved in the kind of activity that Cheney was warning has to be stopped. Cheney said this Monday. She called on the U.S. to stand up to the generational threat posed by China while unveiling a major report on Beijing's malign behavior 
at the same time her hubby's law firm is doing all this work for a bunch of companies linked to Chinese military, Chinese intelligence, and Chinese service, security service companies. Now, all of the work her husband did is legal. He didn't work directly on any of those accounts, but as a partner at the firm, he makes money from all the work the firm is doing. This this just is beyond the pale. I'm sorry, folks. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't agree with it. I don't think it's American, and I certainly don't think it should be going on. Well, that's going to wrap it up today for Thursday. We'll end the week together tomorrow morning, 9 to 11 a.m. And don't forget our bullet points over the weekend. And this show goes on the road Monday and Tuesday. We'll be on the air with you live from Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee. Have a great day. See you tomorrow morning. We love you at TNN Live. For a while, to love was all we could do. We were young and we knew in our eyes. We're alive, deep inside we knew our love was true. For a while, we paid no mind to the past. We knew love would last every night. Something right. Would invite us to begin the day Someday happen along the way What used to be heavy with sand Something